Today's episode comes by request from my friend Graham, who I refer to affectionately as that big hairy thing. Thanks, Graham. This one's for you. This is Structured Rambling, a podcast about ideas from literature and about literature. Episodes can focus on a single text or a theme from multiple texts. My name is Paul Sonstaby. Welcome. So yeah, this episode is uh, fulfilling a request. A request I find most intimidating because I've been asked to compare and contrast two novels by a fairly brilliant human himself. And thus I am intimidated because... I fear he might do a better job than me, but as he doesn't currently have a podcast, I have the power of the mic behind my ineptitude. The second concern I have is I'm supposed to be comparing two works of science science fiction, one I know very well and love, I love it a lot, and one I've known less and can't say I've ever truly loved. So I had to do a fair amount of prep to get myself here. That's good, because... I learned to appreciate the one I didn't love so much more. Today, we're going to compare the futuristic visions of dystopia and utopia, of controlled societies, of the ultimate triumphs of the right and the left in George Orwell's 1984 and Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Frequent listeners know I did an episode on 1984 a while back. Some of that will be retread here, but it's certainly not a prerequisite for this episode that you have listened to that episode. But always feel free to bump my numbers up if you like and go back and listen to that one. It will be a little bit more in-depth on 1984 than this current one is. I don't talk as much about um, ideas and language in this episode as I did in that one, and that is critical to the understanding of 1984. The first thing we must remember is that these two books about the future were written around the same time ago in the past. We often forget, especially with science fiction books like these that that have become classics, that they are from a time reflected of that time's priorities and anxieties and present that time period's view of the future. They are visions of the past's future, if you will. 1984 is now as far in our past as it was in George Orwell's future, and Brave New World hits much differently for those of us who grew up after the sexual liberation of the 1960s. That, that the sexual liberation, was 19, sorry, was 30 years after Huxley's novel was first published. So there, there are perspectives to keep in mind as you read these books. Before comparing these works of literature outside of time as much as possible, let me first comment further on them in their time, because they were products of those times. Though only published 17 years apart and both British, it was a significant 17 years for Britain and the world. Huxley published Brave New World in 1932, just as the world entered the darkened days of the Great Depression. It was heavily influenced upon by the industrial triumphs of mass production of the 1920s, especially folks like Henry Ford. 1984 was published in 1949, 
And its most imposing influences were, of course, the Second World War and the advent of communist Russia as a world power, something Orwell had already explored through allegory in his brilliant animal farm. Hey, there's another old episode of mine you can have a look at if you like. It was only 17 years, but without argument, the most significant 17 years of the 20th century. Brave New World is drunk with hope, and 1984 is broken by horror. This is the thing one has to remember when reading science fiction, really any sort of speculative fiction, the product of the times. No matter how it tries to see ahead, it is looking ahead from when it is. Dune is an amazing book, my favorite book but loudly a book of the 1960s. Lord of the Rings is a book of the 30s, looking even further back, despite its publication in the 1950s. So, for these books, both science fiction, which is not totally a fair definition of either of them, as they're much more than science fiction, but great works of this genre predict the future, but only a possible future. But the more you read it, the more you see reality outstrip the predictions. The world of 2024 has in many ways outstripped the warnings of these two novels, much to my personal concern. I think one thing 1984 has is its shock still shocks. The war on ideas through a war on language is still terrifying. Brave New World's main shocks, sexual liberation, dependency on pharmaceuticals for happiness, it's kind of blasé because, well... We're doing it. But both books still have so much significant merit. Now, I'm also not a big fan of Huxley's style, or frankly, his overall legacy. Decades after Brave New World, he'd discover drugs for himself, real-life soma, and write The Doors of Perception, a book highly influential, but a book of silliness that is essentially just a really eloquent stoner writing about a couple of trips he has. His style in Brave New World is far more artsy, sometimes pretentious, and overall, for me, less approachable than Orwell's in 1984. Orwell, but for one section, um, and despite its length, writes the easier book. As a novel, it's a much more pleasant experience. It's more of a novel than Brave New World. Given all of Huxley's embedded Shakespeare and knowing my own love for Shakespeare, some may be surprised to hear me say this, but... I don't much care for overly, you know, intentionally, artfully complex style. I've read all of James Joyce. I have yet to do anything on him in this podcast. I don't know, maybe I'll do The Dead someday, but being difficult doesn't always mean it's meaningful. And I know the there are people who love what Ulysses does, but... Ulysses is a book you finish, not a book you read. Huxley is difficult, and sometimes difficulty is mistaken for literary merit, upheld by the pretentious as good simply because it is so difficult. No. Shakespeare is difficult and good. Moby Dick is difficult, and it sucks. Brave New World floats somewhere in between, but it also deserves the caveat that it's 90 years old. Many books of such vintage are less approachable for modern readers. I'd like to open my formal analysis quoting the beloved 
Margaret Atwood. Quote, In the latter half of the 20th century, two visionary books cast their shadows on our futures. One was George Orwell's 1949 novel, 1984, with its horrific vision of a brutal, mind-controlling totalitarian state, a book that gave us Big Brother and Thought Crime and Newspeak and the Memory Hole and the Torture Palace called the Ministry of Love and the discouraging spectacle of, boot grinding, of a boot grinding into a human face forever. The other was Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, 1932, which proposed a different and softer form of totalitarianism, one of conformity achieved through engineered, bottle-grown babies and hypnotic persuasion rather than through brutality of boundless consumption that keeps the wheels of production turning an officially enforced promiscuity that does away with sexual frustration of a preordained caste system ranging from, high, from a highly intellectual managerial class to a subgroup of dim-witted serfs programmed to love their menial work and of Soma, a drug that confers instant bliss with no side effects. Atwood's thesis, which I find myself inclined to agree with, is the Ministry of Love and the Ministry of Truth are alive and well in 2024, especially in Trump and Musk's America. Two minutes of hate? Just have folks line up and look at the leader of the opposition political party. I wonder when Canada next goes through its next predictable 10-year government shift, what all of these fine, eloquent folks with their F. Trudeau flags will do when their guy gets in and nothing at all changes. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss, said the Who. Atwood grew up in a time of still constant sexual repression. The free love society of Brave New World was still shocking when she was a girl. And by her adult years, this had changed, thanks in large part to women and artists like herself. By the time Margaret Atwood was a cultural icon in the 1980s, Soma was easily available under names like Prozac and Valium. When she first read the book, it was explosive, still after 20 years, but by the time she wrote her own dystopian masterpiece, The Handmaid's Tale, Brave New World had lost a bit of its bite. I imagine the pendulum shifts in waves, but today the dystopian world we live in too clearly resemble or resembles Orwell's, not Huxley's. It's been getting worse and worse in, the direction, in that direction since 9-11, and recent pseudo-fascists like the already mentioned Donald and Vladimir Putin with their stunning, stunned followers, so willing to drink in blatant falsehood, fed to them by new media so easily, easily utilized for lies. Well, you see a lot of t-shirts these days that say, and hats that say, make Orwell fiction again. And none for Huxley. What are these two worlds? The truth about each is not revealed initially. Only hinted at or revealed through random experiences and explanations by the protagonists or to the protagonists. The truth of this society in each novel is revealed through a long speech delivered by a powerful figure, figure to the protagonist. This is only one of the many parallels between those oh-so-different novels that makes comparing them so much fun. Both are mostly set in London in the future, though in 1984 it's Orwell's future at the time, not, our, not ours, and London is called Airstrip 1. First, Brave New World. 
This world is a sort of controlled and imposed vision of someone's idea of a utopia. There's no more war, no more unhappiness, no more conflict. The world is so tightly controlled that no one encounters any problems, but also none of the thrills of having to overcome problems. All humans are now test tube babies. In fact, people are disgusted when they encounter Linda, a woman who has actually given birth and is called to their disgust a mother. While growing the babies, the babies are chemically and mentally conditioned to be docile, to completely buy into the ideologies of the society of their specific caste, and most importantly, to become functional members of those castes. The castes are named for the first five letters of the Greek alphabet. You have alphas, the intellectual leaders, betas, skilled workers, gammas, semi-skilled workers, um, deltas, uh, lower skilled workers, and finally epsilons, moronic, simian creatures that handle the bottom skills of society. No one ever leaves his or her caste, and each caste wears an assigned and recognizable color. The structure of this novel can be off-putting to the modern reader, especially to a young student. And and that may influence my own bias. Um, I tend to read books as a teacher thinking about the kids I teach, and they love 1984. They struggle sometimes with Brave New World. The first few chapters of 1984 uh, establish much we need to know about this world, but at the expense of characterization and plot. We learn of the chemical and psychological process that sees uh, Petri dish people turned into their specific caste. We learn of some of the pleasure-inducing drug that is uh, the solution to all life's ills. Chapter 3 is especially confusing, but lays most of the groundwork for this world. But interesting, too, for the purpose of our comparison of these two novels is the parallel of power explainer, if I can invent a character type. We meet the controller, his fordship, Mustafa Mond, who in this early chapter, in chapter 3, establishes much of what we need to know about his world. Then, in the climactic chapter, where he expresses most of the book's themes through a long monologue delivered to John the Savage, the nearest thing to the protagonist in this novel. Now consider O'Brien in 1984, who does the same thing to Winston early on. Then again, summarizes and expands on his respective novel's main concepts during the, the brutal scenes at the Ministry of Love in Room 101. So, you have a parallel, parallel, if you will, between these two characters in the books. Chapter 3 of Brave New World sees Mond establishing most of what we need to get us started um, as young children in his world. He's explaining this to young children, in fact. His dialogue about uh, their society is interspersed with Lenina Crowns as she uh, is conveniently explaining the society's structure around sexual liberation and soma dependence. Mustafa Mond is called his Fordship because in this world, created in 1932, don't forget, Henry Ford's mass production has defined the world. Ford has replaced religion as crosses have had their tops chopped off to form a T, as in the Model T, Ford's great mass-produced car model. The failings of religion and booze have been replaced um, by dependency... uh, 
for some, which has, quote, all the advantages of Christianity and alcohol, none of the defects. R. Ford also doubles as R. Freud in psychological and sexual matters, um, doling the influence of the first two decades of the 20th century out upon this distant future. People don't know Sigmund Freud and Henry Ford were different people because, like art and literature, history has been eliminated in this novel. The real Henry Ford said it, quote, History is bunk. What may have been explosive at the times of writing has maybe been a bit um, sort of diluted by time. But he meant it sincerely, and both Brave New World and 1984 set out to prove, among so many other things, the sacred diction that those who do not learn from the past, those who do not learn from history, are doomed to repeat it. The less people know, the easier it is to make them believe and follow anything. And that, right there, speaks to why these novels remain pertinent in a day where people think they can get news from Facebook, Rebel Media, and TikTok. Lenina and Bernard, two of this novel's trinity of protagonists, discover the third, John the Savage, a man raised in America who has horrifyingly been born of woman. There's my Shakespeare reference. Poor Linda. And who has read, and, and John has read, and even thinks in Shakespearean language. When I complain about this book, people who know me and know how much I know and love and even uh, ingest Shakespeare mention all its references. Every time I read it, I spot more. Yes, but it's almost as if Huxley's having the savage defend Shakespeare the way others would defend the Bible. It sounds awesome, out of context, but they're mostly just John's thinking in illusions. Thematically, I don't know that all that Shakespeare is being used to say all that much. Um, except to say that this is art and it is lost, and that's too bad because it is good. The films Lenina and her ilk enjoy are called feelies, movies where you experience what's on screen, mostly sex, 4D porn, not art, just experiences. We as humans are limited to our basic bestial needs. Now, on to the world of 1984. Brave New World shows us more of the, uh, well, Brave New World. 1984 only tells of the world beyond what Winston sees in Airstrip 1, but none of it may actually be true, so we never know what's going on beyond it. Brave New World actually travels uh, to America. That's where John the Savage is found. So, Winston, in 1984, is in a world constantly at war, governed by three major powers, Oceania, Eurasia, and East Asia. And his own, Oceania, is always at war with one and allied with the other. Who that is constantly changes, but the authorities say that when it does change, that it hasn't changed. It's always been that way as it is now, for he who controls the past controls the future, and he who controls the present controls the past. This, according to the party, is the dominant force. It, the party, is the dominant force in Oceania. Brave New World offers pleasure as a distraction. 1984 offers conflict. 
The point is the people are too distracted to care. Interestingly, we're given the frame by members of the upper classes, Bernard and Lenina in Brave New World and Winston and Julia in 1984, as a means of framing their world. These characters pity, revile, and are intrigued by the lesser, poor, um, the proles, the deltas, the epsilons of Brave New World, um, the proles of 1984, as I said. In each novel, the less the masses know or remember, the better. In Brave New World, so much time has passed that Mustafa Mon can say anything is true. There's no way to check. In 1984, the proposition is that if you erase history, if you erase language and ideas, did they ever exist? Winston was born in our time, that is, post-World War II. But so much of what he remembers is proven lost. And within a generation, anybody who remembers what Winston remembers will be gone. John the Savage of Brave New World simply can't believe how little people think. In 1984, history and ideas and self-expression are erased. In Brave New World, they're made unimportant. In 1984, this is done through brutality, a, quote, boot on a face. In Brave New World, it's through pleasure, through needs being met, if not wants. Both novels offer a character attempting to come up with answers and even operate outside this world, even challenge it, to even solve it, to even defeat it. In Brave New World, thick with terms that make us uncomfortable, we have John the Savage from an Indian reservation in America. You can see all these terms I'm uncomfortable saying to this day. Please note the quotation marks. John quotes Shakespeare, and he feels real feelings. In 1984, we have Winston Smith illegally writing in a journal that he hates Big Brother and attempting to join an underground brotherhood. Both stories are tragic. Both men received the the long speech from the face of power, Mustafa Mond and O'Brien, and both men are defeated by the society they attempt to resist. The world wins. In both novels, individualism is firmly stamped out by the end. Interestingly, though only on a superficial level, is a comparison between Lenina, Lenina, I always say that wrong, I'm sorry, Lenina and Julia. Lenina is the stereotypical female and soma addict in Brave New World's liberalized sexual and, and, and just pleasure-driven society. Julia is Winston's love interest in 1984, but her youth sees her simply rebelling in general, not with specific desire to make real change, which conflicts with Winston. She is a promiscuous member of the Junior Anti-Sex League. Both women are constantly defined by their attire. Uh, Lenina, her Uh, racy little outfits with their zippers for quick access. Julia, the sash in uniform that recognizes her as a member of the Junior Anti-Sex League. And both contrast with the male figure for their living only in and for the moment. Lenina takes Soma, has sex, goes to the feelies, um, speaks the paradigms of her conditioning. Julia has trysts with Winston, puts on makeup, makes coffee. Each woman simply lives for now, one in submission to her world, one in vague reticence to it. By the end, 
Each woman is completely removed from the male protagonist. These are not feminist novels. Uh, Even though my beloved Maggie Atwood loves um, at least what Brave New World was attacking, it isn't, neither novel is a novel that comes out showing much good for the feminine. Neither book either has an exact climax. What they have is a really risky monologue wherein, as I've said already, the rebellious protagonist is presented with the concept of the book, many of its major themes, and the society's main uh, drives, and shown why his attempts to fight against this world are fruitless. Mustafa Mond, only shown in brief prior to chapter 16 of Brave New World, Um, shows John the Savage the folly of clinging to the past and to the beauty uh, that can be seen in overcoming conflict. John defends the beauty of Shakespeare, but Mon says Shakespeare must be prohibited, quote, because it's old. We haven't any use for old things here. Even if they're beautiful? Particularly when they're beautiful. Beauty's attractive, and we don't want people attracted by old things. We want them to like new ones. John continues to resist this, but Mond has the justification of a stable and mostly peaceful society to help his argument. Quote, You can't make flivers without steel, and you can't make tragedies without social instability. The world's stable now. People are happy. They get what they want, and they never want what they can't get. They're well off. They're safe. They're never ill. They're not afraid of death. They're blissfully ignorant of passion and old age. They're plagued with no mothers or fathers. They've got no wives or children or lovers to feel strongly about. They're so conditioned that they practically can't help believing as they ought to behave. Sorry, they can't help behaving as they ought to behave. And if anything should go wrong, there's Soma, which you go and chuck out of the window in the name of liberty, Mr. Savage. Liberty! He laughed, expecting Deltas to know what liberty is, and now expecting them to understand Othello? My good boy. John is unconvinced and defends a life overcoming struggle, a life of triumph, a life um, that is more than just bland contentment, to which Mon says, quote, Actual happiness always looks pretty squalid in comparison with the overcompensations for misery. And, of course, stability isn't nearly so spectacular as instability. And being contented has has none of the glamour of a good fight against misfortune, none of the picturesqueness of a struggle with temptation or a fatal overflow by passion or doubt. Happiness is never grand. Life is a struggle, and our greatest victories feel so because we've overcome that struggle. But Mon's point is that we have justified that thinking because we must always struggle. Great history and art are defined by conflict. Remove conflict and you can't have either. But for John, and for you and me, dear listener, that's no kind of life. Basic basic needs met is just contentment. And contentment is not life. It's the equivalent of being hooked up to machines to keep you alive. You're alive. But how so? John is unable to buy into this, but now he is also unable to bring any change to this society. He's defeated. 
and he's not he's not able to to see any way out but he's not as utterly crushed as is winston as i've said just as pure novels go, I like 1984 better. I like its structure better, and I'm a much bigger fan of Orwell's style than Huxley's and the man himself, to get a little bit too meta. The book opens more gently for the reader, giving us a central character on which to focus, Winston, and at first a very simple narrative structure. Winston outlines the circumstances in Airstrip 1, explains the three ministries, then promptly commits thought crime by writing down with Big Brother. The first arc uh, of the novel, the, the first two-thirds, involves his, his time with Julia, his, his, his romance with her, his passive resistance to the party, um, and, and his, his intrigue with O'Brien and the rebellious brotherhood. The most off-putting section of the whole book is where Winston reads from a book by Emmanuel Goldstein, given him by O'Brien, which purports to finally tell the truth of the world. It goes on for 30 pages, and I've lost the interest of more than a few students with this section, as important as it is. You really have to have the right class to teach it because there's just a big old essay in there. Problematically, uh, Goldstein's book's truth is later undermined uh, because O'Brien is a liar, so wouldn't everything he gives Winston be a lie? But what we learn in, in it for what we can take, is that Winston's world is constantly at war because, as Orwell learned in World War II, a populace focused on winning a war can be distracted from any wrongs being done to them. Resources used up in pursuit of war and the populace, members of the party, and the Delta Parallel Proles are all fed propaganda, rewritten history, and distractions like lotteries and pornography. It's not as pleasurable as an existence, as Soma and Feelys, but it works as a fine distraction nonetheless. At the end of this section, this, the, the, the section with the reading, Winston is taken to the Ministry of Love for re-education. It's here that O'Brien now reveals himself to be a member of the Thought Police and of the Inner Party. Mond-like, he then tells Winston the realities and presents the novel's main arguments. Mustafa Mon presents the facts of his world to John the Savage with an almost bemused satisfaction. John um, refuses to just shut his brain off, forget the past, and enjoy sensory overload. Winston's re-education in Room 101 comes after days of starvation and torture. The whole section is much longer than the parallel section of Brave New World, involving doublethink, that curious horror in which a person is compelled to some simultaneously accept two opposite ideas. For example, though it's, you would think that it's both winter and summer right now. The explanation of language grounded in newspeak is given as well. The chief horror for that, uh, for those of us who live and breathe language, is the, that certain concepts cease to exist if we no longer have words for them. Can people experience freedom if the word freedom no longer exists? Winston, because of his dim memories of a past before the party, because of the, the kernel of resistance inside him, because 
even if he wanted to, his inability to accept that 2 plus 2 could equal 5 is a special project, and O'Brien has to crush him. O'Brien tells him, quote, If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stepping on a human face forever. This is the essence of Oceania. The party presses down on the populace, keeping them confused and dulled by the necessity of war, living in poverty and telling them it's plenty, and slowly erasing the past and any ideas not helping the party continue its existence. Quote, Powers inflicting pain and humiliation. Power is tearing human minds to pieces and putting them together again in new shapes of your own choosing. A world of fear and treachery and torment. A world of trampling and being trampled upon. A world which will grow not less but more merciless as it refines itself. Progress in our world will be progress to more pain. We shall abolish the orgasm. There will be no art, no literature, no science. There will be no distinction between beauty and ugliness. There will be no curiosity, no enjoyment of the process of life. All competing pleasures will be destroyed. Different methods than in Brave New World, but the same results. Ultimately, Winston is broken. He comes to accept doublethink. He comes to believe in his heart of hearts that he loves Big Brother. And he comes to believe everything he is told, no matter how contradictory. The image the novel ends with, that heart-wrenching one of the shattered, drunk, mindless form of Winston just waiting around until the, bo- the party bothers to shoot him, is haunting. He's broken. John the Savage still fights, but just as pointlessly. Ultimately, both book ends in the victory of the system over the individual. In her introduction to the 2007 edition of Brave New World, Margaret Atwood compares these two novels, arguing that both present versions of our future. Quote, Brave New World is either a perfect world utopia or its nasty opposite, a dystopia, depending on your point of view. In 1984, with its horrific vision of a brutal mind-controlling totalitarian state, the discouraging spectacle of a boot grinding into the human face forever. She argues that each era since the book was written saw each book become more horrible. The button-down America of the 1950s was shocked by Brave New World. The democratic world of the escalating Cold War of the 1970s akin more to 1984. The 90s were Soma. After the Twin Towers fell and the Department of Homeland Security concocted, the Thought Police came back. She argues that each book has its dystopian merits, if there is such a thing. And she asks, most provocatively, would it be possible for both of these futures, the hard and the soft, to exist at the same time in the same place? And what would it be like? Not to be overly cynical, But it would be like what it is. It would be like what is. We're living in it. This is it. Read any good speculative fiction, any science fiction novel that presents a possible future. 
and you will find that you always eventually fall short of the mark. The book never sees how far we eventually come. No, neither of these novels has proven entirely true because society has not been completely wiped out or replaced. The change has been more subtle and more sinister. Soma? Maybe it's called Prozac, but more likely it's called scrolling. The Ministry of Truth? Facebook or Twitter slash X. Fox News, I always use air quotes when I say the news part, by the way. As brilliant as these books are, as subtle at times, they're too simple. The brutal reality that they predicted, each in its own way, has, been, has played out in modern times. Ask your average person on the street, would they rather read Shakespeare and talk history like John, or live in the moment? dwell upon their appearance, and just look for a laugh and some kicks like Lenina. Is your average person politically motivated, seeking truth, wanting to fight corruption like Winston before Room 101, or just happy, accepting what they're told, wishing to be entertained by simple things like Winston sitting in the Chestnut Cafe, drinking gin and playing chess with himself? Even the best science fiction eventually falls short. These are two intense visions of possible futures, but futures viewed and feared almost a century ago. The real scary part is how much we've exceeded Orwell and Huxley's worst conjectures. Because the real irony, the real contradiction, is these are both books about government having too much power and using it. Libertarians, aching for a ruleless dystopia where we kill who we want and eat each other, see the warnings here. But this isn't what's proven true. There is no party and there are no alphas keeping us in our lines. The power is with the people, the proles and the delta and the epsilons. But they use none of it, for they are controlled. They are drugged. They are kept passive but not by tyrannical administrators, no matter what the backyard bunker freedom convoy anti-vax tinfoil hat sect would have you believe. Soma is entertainment. Big Brother is a Kardashian. We are kept in line by the distractions of Snapchat, by feeling bad for poor Harry and Meghan with their billions, for weeping over the latest celebrity divorce, by feeling that it's good and right for a man to make millions playing a game 18 times a year, and for another man to make billions at the expense of that first man's body, mind, and soul. We don't need a party or a Bologovsky procedure. We have mind-numbing celebrity worship, world-choking capitalism, fundamentalist religion, and the cult of entitlement. Science wasn't crushed, history wasn't erased, and art wasn't banned. They've been cast aside by willful ignorance and people's overvalue of their own opinions. Why have ministries of hate and in vitro indoctrination when any moron can refute fact with the simple words, which are ironic, quote, I just think, meaning... I have an opinion, and I don't think at all. Brave New World in 1984 can never come true because the real dystopia is too much stronger 
too much worse. It's now. Have a nice day. I want to thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed my podcast, please feel free to give me a rating and review. Episodes come out at the beginning and middle of pretty much every month. Have a great day.